Welcome to this week's episode of the His Hill Podcast. My name is Kelly Darty, and I'm your host. Today, I want us to look a little bit at the book of Nahum. I've been teaching this book uh, recently, and so it's it's been on my mind. And I'm I'm going to look at the first uh, f- first eight verses, and we will specifically be looking at. Uh, one word found in verse two and just build on that and think on that. The word is enemy. Now that might be strange by thinking, wow, is this really a devotional word? Uh, you know, but yes, it is because of where it leads us, where it takes us, which is where we need to be as believers in Christ. So let's, uh, let's go to the book of Nahum and let's look at verses uh, one through eight in chapter one. Okay, so the book of Nahum is uh, is an interesting book in that it's kind of it's kind of part two uh, with regards to the city of Nineveh. We know that in the book of Jonah, uh, Nineveh is is dealt with. You know, they're they're a they're, they're a, a sinful nation, and God's going to deal with them. So He sends Jonah there. Jonah preaches to them, and they repent and are 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 forgiven and it's you know it's a story that, in, that ends interestingly because Jonah's mad about that because Nineveh is known for their cruelty and and the nation of Israel has to live with that constantly as a possibility if not a probability every day of their life and so now God is going to forgive them that just you know that he just has a hard time accepting that and that's a whole another story of its own but that's that's where we find Nineveh. But then we know that Nineveh ends up being destroyed. And I was teaching through Jonah one time, and someone came up to me and said, "Now, Kelly, you're you know you're saying that they've repented, but God destroyed them." And I said, "Yeah, He did. He did destroy them. Uh, but you got to understand, He did that 150 years after they had repented." And uh, you know the, the 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 exact years are kind of debated. Something it was 120, 150. At you know, it's a long time, whatever it was. But you know they, they had repented. But now we find in the book of Nahum, they're going to be destroyed. This is an incredible lesson for us to learn there. With that, you know, um, it was uh, Anderson who once said that past blessing does not guarantee present peace. The people of each generation must seek and serve God for themselves. Now that's that's something for us to think about. You know, so often we think that as Christians, you know, I put my faith in Christ when I was nine years old, so everything's okay. So, you know, I'll just do my best and, you know, get by and then, you know, someday, you know, get to heaven. Well, listen, that's that's not how it goes. The, the scripture is clear. Peter says, uh, quoting from the Old Testament, that we are to be holy for God is holy. James says, show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. So there should be a change in our life. There should be something that is seen. There should be something that we show in how we live every day. And so uh, while we cannot lose our salvation, we can certainly suffer loss, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if we are not living in that by faith in Christ in that relationship. Past blessing does not guarantee present peace. But each generation must seek and serve God. So 
Today, are you pressing on? Today, are you looking to Jesus? Today, are you living by faith in Christ and not in yourselves? And so with that in mind, so kind of the context of the book, uh, some, some of the background anyway, and now let's, let's look a little bit and get some of the context by reading uh, verses 1 to 8. And it starts off with this, The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers of Bashan and Carmel with the blossoms of Lebanon uh, wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with the overwhelming flood, he will make a, or with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. So here again, like I said before, I want us to just think about the word enemy as found in verse two. What constitutes the enemy of God? You know, throughout history, we have been able to readily identify our enemies. You know, the world was quick to identify Hitler as an enemy, Stalin as an enemy, Bin Laden as an enemy. But what about perhaps our biggest enemy? I'm talking about you and me, ourselves. A friend of mine, Doug Lanier, who used to be the principal at his hill before me, so years ago, he used to say this, we always think our problem is our problem, but that's not our problem. We are our problem, and that's a problem. Do we recognize that we can so often be the enemy of God? When David had committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, had impregnated her, and then to cover it up, committed murder and actually killed her husband. Thinking he had gotten away with it, God sent Nathan to David. Nathan comes to David, and Nathan tells him the story of two men. One was rich, one was poor. The poor man had only one sheep. The rich man had many. The poor man's sheep was more of a pet than anything else, lived with them in the house, was treated as a member of the family, and was loved. So it was a pet. The rich man had a visitor come and instead of slaughtering one of his sheep, he took the poor man's sheep, slaughtered it and fed it to the guest. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 5 that when Nathan told David this story, David was just irate. And it reads like this in verse 5, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. 
He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David in verse 7, You are the man. You are the problem. So, do we ever recognize that of ourselves? That I'm the man. I'm the problem. I am the enemy of God. We find the word enemy here in uh, in verse 2. And then again in verse 8, we also find the word um, in uh, also in verse 2, just the line before enemy, we find the word adversary. And though it is a different word, even in the Greek, it's synonymous with enemy. So we find repetition here that God is, he's repeating himself. We find that God is making it clear that he has an enemy and that he is dealing with his enemy. God is the same yesterday, today, and yes, forever. So we see here the God who doesn't change knows his enemy and deals with his enemy. Enemy, the word enemy, according to Strong's, is basically a direct translation. So what does that word mean to us as enemy? Well, from Cambridge Dictionary, it's it's defined like this. Enemy is a person who hates or opposes another person or tries to harm them. Now listen to this or stop them from doing something. What does God's enemies try to stop him from accomplishing? Well, I think it's clear from Scripture that God's enemies try to stop God from being God. And how do they do this? Well, they do this by yielding to and being in league with Satan. Let me explain. Go to Isaiah chapter 14, and there we... Uh, we read that God is wanting to address the king uh, of Babylon. And beginning in verse 3, we read this, And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved. So he's talking to Israel here. He says that you will take up his, this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, so saying to the king of Babylon, how the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. And then down in verse 12, how you, talking to the king of Babylon, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will rise my throne or raise my throne above the stars to God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. From selfish pride, he will lift himself up, or so he thinks he will. And then in Ezekiel chapter 28, here, um, this will be addressed to the king Tyree, and let's uh, let me let me go to that passage here in Ezekiel chapter twenty-eight. I'm going to begin in verse twelve, where it says this: "Sons of men, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say, uh, say to him, Thus says the Lord God: You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden." 
the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created until the unrighteousness was found in you by the abundance of your trade, you were eternally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you. O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. But the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. Now, in reading those two passages, you know, there, there's phrases there that may make you think, no, 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 he's not talking to the kings of Babylon and Tyre. He's talking to Satan. And I would say, you're right but you're wrong, but you're right. You see, these two passages deal immediately with the kings of Babylon and Tyre, but it's widely accepted that it is at least symbolic that they describe the rulers of Babylon and Tyre. He's describing them and their source of their treachery, and their source of their treachery is Satan himself. And you're thinking, maybe scratching your head, what are you talking about? Well, listen to this that Jesus says in Matthew 16 and verse 23. When Peter tells Jesus, no, you're not going to go to the cross. No, you're not going to die. And Jesus looks at him and he says this in Matthew 16, 23. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Listen to the commentary that Major Thomas gives from this passage. It reads like this. It was Peter who had spoken, but the Lord Jesus Christ knew perfectly well that it was Satan who was behaving. Borrowing Peter's humanity as a means of expressing his malicious and subtle attempt to dissuade Christ from going to the cross. And later, somewhere else, Major Thomas said this, as godliness is the direct and exclusive consequence of God's activity and God's capacity to reproduce himself in you, so all ungodliness is the direct and exclusive consequence of Satan's activity and his capacity to reproduce the devil in you. This is the mystery of iniquity, but iniquity is no more the consequence of your capacity to imitate the devil than godliness is the consequence of your capacity to imitate God. I know this is hard to hear. This is uncomfortable, but listen, let's, let's stay with me. Listen to, Matt, to, to Romans 7, 18 to 20, 
where we read this, Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. Verse 20, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Listen to how the Amplified Bible puts verse 20. It reads like this. Now, if I do what I do not desire to do, it is no longer I doing it. It is not myself that's acting, but the sin principle which dwells within me, fixed and operating in my soul. Satan's desire is to take God's place. And this is exactly the temptation that he uses with Adam and Eve in the garden. When he says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Charles Price once said this, the lie in the garden was not that you will be like God, but that you will be like God without God. You will live out the image of God, but you'll do it without God. In other words, you don't need God. For God, you can trust yourself. You see what I'm getting at here is that Satan is the enemy of God. And when we yield to him, when we yield to that temptation of being like God without God, then by the power of Satan, as we yield to him, we become the enemy of God. Jesus says this, to those religious leaders who were opposing him in John 8:44 you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him and he's saying you want to do the desires of your father the devil whenever he speaks a lie He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. God's enemy is Satan, and Nineveh was his willing vessel. Let me say that again. God's enemy is Satan, and Nineveh was his willing vessel, which makes them God's enemy as well. And so we find from these New Testament verses the same can be true of you and me who have put our faith in Christ. If that's the case, then I think a natural question and a necessary question would be, what's the destiny of the enemy of God? Well, according to the passage that we read back in Nahum, in verses 2 to 8, it's laid out pretty clear for us that the enemy of God must face God's sovereignty. In verse 2, God's vengeance and wrath. In verse 3, God's punishment. In verse 6, God's indignation and anger and again God's wrath. And in verse 8, 
God will bring Nineveh to a complete end, and also God will fully, he is fully committed to this according to the verse. He will pursue his enemy into darkness. He is relentless in his battle and his determination and the certainty of destroying and crushing his enemy. The enemy will not stand against God. Israel thinks here in Isaiah, he addresses a people who think that they will escape from the invading forces of Assyria by worshiping false gods. And God will address them here with this. In Isaiah 28, verse 14, it says this, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. See, their confidence in facing the Assyrian invasion is blackness, is evil. And these are God's people. The overwhelming scourge, they say, will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Therefore, listen to the Lord's reply, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this about verse 16 that I just read. Whether Isaiah thought of the cornerstone as the Messiah or simply as genuine belief in the Lord is not clear, but other passages in the, um, on the cornerstone definitely refers to Christ. So here it would, it would seem that the Lord is saying through Isaiah, you, Israel, have put your faith in evil to protect you. (laughs) Isn't that shocking? God's people have put their faith in evil to protect them. And God says, it's not going to happen. But Christ will be a stumbling block to this. Christ will prove that your faith in anything other than me is a waste. In verse 18, it goes on to say, Your covenant with death will be canceled, and your pact with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you become its trampling place. Assyria will take you. And then we find in the new covenant, God's determination in defeating his enemy, in defeating Satan, The depths that he will go to to ensure this is found in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 where it says this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him, Satan, who had the power of death, that is the devil. There is certain victory because God will go to the length that is required to defeat him. God is resolute in defeating his enemy. So is there any hope? We see throughout Scripture that the enemy to God never wins and will never 
win. We find that so often we play the enemy. We become the enemy of God. And we see throughout Scripture that God is all about destroying his enemy. Is there any hope? We find it in the middle of all this in verse 7. And you know that's really tempting. i got to tell you, it's really tempting to start with verse 7 and not end with it. But unless I think it really amplifies verse 7 for us to see how dark and how black it is to stand against God, to what it means to be his enemy, and then read verse 7, because then we truly appreciate what is said here. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. God is good. And there's three things here about his goodness that is displayed to us. He is, in verse 7, he is a stronghold. He knows those. And who does he know? Those who take refuge in him. Three words I want us to look at. Stronghold, the word knows, and the word refuge. The first one is the stronghold. That word literally means a fortified place. The people in Nineveh thought that their city was was a, a great and safe fortress. But they're soon to find out that their false fortification does not compare to the comfort and the safety of the fortification, the protection of God. The same word as stronghold is found in Psalm 27, verse 1. It reads like this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. The word defense means stronghold. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I dread? In chapter 37 of Psalms, verse 39, we read, But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. So he is our stronghold. And then the word knows. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. He knows. This is a participle indicating continuous action. The Lord always knows those who take refuge in him, those who trust in him. The word suggests an intimate knowledge of those who belong to him. And it brings with it, according to Smith, an understanding of approval and care. So in Psalm 1-6 we read, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And to what depth does he know us? Well, Psalm 139, verse 7, all the way through 12, reads like this. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even there. Wow. Even 
there, the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Therefore, he approves, he selects, he cares for those who take refuge in him. And then the third word, refuge. It means to flee to, to hope in, to trust in, which makes me think of the word, which it's a different word in in the original language, but it, it means the same. In Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Trust in him. Take refuge in him. In other words, the idea here is to hurry to him and take refuge there. Hope in him and take refuge there. Jesus says in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You see, Jesus protects those he knows. He is our stronghold and our refuge. Though we, though we fail him so often, and in the flesh, we believe the lie of Satan, that we can be like God without God. Our hope, our certainty is this, that Jesus has destroyed his enemy and that he approves of, he knows, and he gives eternal life to those who are his. Even though we so often live like the enemy of God or even as the enemy of God, God is taking care of that problem. He has destroyed Satan, the source of our rebellion. And by faith in Christ, we are brought into that relationship that he has made the way for, that he has pursued into darkness, verse 8, and won the victory. I've known people in my life who have displayed this to me. People who, toward the end of their life, when knowing they're facing the last few days, can say with confidence that my refuge is Jesus. I have been a failure in my flesh, but in Christ I have won. I've watched this with my father-in-law. In the last few days of his life, you know, they probably were some of the most intense battles for him spiritually. But he could communicate with confidence that his refuge is Jesus. I've seen it with my brother-in-law, who in the last few days of his life, though he would quickly tell you he has not, he has not been what he knows he should always be. His pursuit has been the Lord, his desire has been the Lord, but he has failed so often, sitting in that room alone with him just days before he died. He communicated such an excitement to see his Lord. And he was confident of this because of what Jesus had done. I saw it in my mother's eyes just days before she died. 
when she looked at me in pain, reached out and touched me to comfort me. There was a confidence in her eyes in the midst of her pain. Though she who loved the Lord knew she had not always been, not always lived, and so often had failed him, not always been what she knew she should have been, there was great confidence for her. I saw it in my dad's face in the last few years when he couldn't even put thoughts together clearly because of Alzheimer's. I saw it in his face when we would talk about the Lord, when we would read scripture. And I couldn't be there with him because I was teaching somewhere else when he actually died. But Charlie McCall, my good friend, went to be with him at his side. And he said, Kelly, there was a confidence there. He said he couldn't even put it into words, but there was a confidence there that this man whose mind was shot was at peace and with confidence. Though he had not lived every day the way he knew he should, there was confidence for him that Jesus had defeated the enemy. You know, so often we get so distracted with our failure. And we hear, you know, this devotion where I just talk so much about being the enemy of God. And then we hear that so often I am the enemy of God because of my yielding to Satan. And we sit here in despair. It's good for us to recognize how dark and how black it is apart from God how dark and how black I am apart from his life in me. But isn't it incredible to find that in the middle of all of this dark description, we find the words, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord is good. Are you choosing today to live in his goodness? to know with confidence that God has destroyed you in the flesh and that's done away with. And so now it's for you to live in his goodness because of Jesus. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the His Hill Podcast featuring our host, Kelly Doherty. We hope this episode was encouraging to you and your heart. If you would like to get in touch with Kelly, please feel free to reach out to him via email. Kelly can be reached at kelly at hishill.org. Again, thank you so much for joining us this week for another episode of the His Hill Podcast. Remember to keep your eyes fixed on Christ, and don't forget that you have been crucified with Christ, and that it is no longer you who is living, but it is Christ who is living in you. I'm Lizzie, and we'll see you next week.